0: Hello and welcome to OU's Nach Yomi. You can find this year posted at ouradioorg slash nach or on my website ericlevy.com under the recording section. Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you Chapter Nine of the Book of Danielle. We all know most of this chapter by heart, really. The majority of it can be found in our prayers, specifically the Hurachum of Tachnun that we say on Mondays and Thursdays right before the Torah reading. Some of it we can be found in the various high holiday confessional prayers. The harder part of this chapter will be to see why or determine why Daniel launches into a lengthy prayer, which becomes one of our most common and popular words of prayer, petition and confession. In the first year of Darius, the son of Xerxes, from the offspring of Madai, who was enthroned over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, this is not Darius, in my humble opinion. This is not Darius, the son of Cyrus, on whose watch the second tuple actually got off the ground. And this is certainly not Darius, a successor of Ahasuerus of the Esther story. As such, this obviously also, this Ahashverosh is also not the Ahasuerus from the Esther story. Rather, if you both are listed as Median, not Persian. And this Darius is said to have taken over, not the Persian Empire, but he's taken over the Chaldean, i.e. the end of the Babylonian Empire, which apparently happens before Cyrus the Great completely puts an end to Babylonia and takes things over for himself. Therefore, this must be the same Darius the Mede that we met in chapter 6, who appears to have been set up with the control over the collapsing Babylonian dynasty right before Cyrus the Great uh, takes over full control and establishes his Persian empire. As I mentioned in chapter 6, our external history sources um, are not aware of this king or of the, any kind of interim period between the fall of Babylonia and the rise of Persia but our book but the book of Daniel has been very clear about this Darius the Mede character which is now even more fleshed out he is a median however he is a transition character who really continues the babylonian empire under median control until the rise of persia shortly after ani daniel binoti basfarim hanavi... In the first year of his rule, I, Daniel, was studying the scrolls regarding the year count, which is in the word of God to Jeremiah the prophet, which completes the destruction of Jerusalem by the 70th year. Okay, in Yirmiyahu chapter 25, uh, he speaks of 70 years which are carved out, starting with the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which is the fourth year of yo reign, which is 605 BCE. That would bring the end of the 70-year period to 536, although the Babylonian dynasty actually falls to Cyrus the Great in 539. So figure right now we're approximately in 540, so give or take just a few years. In chapter 29 of the book of Yirmiyahu, that prophet sends a letter to all of the exiles in Babylon, and certainly that letter would have been in the hands of Daniel, and he tells the exiles um, that that the exile, not the destruction of the temple, but the exile would last for 70 years and therefore the exile should raise family and try to live whatever kind of normal lives they can manage and just stay the course until the exile is over. There were some who thought that the exile would be uh, ending right away so they were refusing to have kids or build houses and Yirmiyahu says don't play those games. you got 70 years to go so start leading normal lives so that when God says we can come back after 70 years there'll be a people to return from uh, from So So when Daniel here says here that the 70 years will be the length of the destruction of Jerusalem, what he must mean is that Jerusalem was as good as destroyed since it was abandoned or began to be abandoned once Nebuchadnezzar, once Nebuchadnezzar took up the throne of Babylonia and started exiling all the Judean royalty and aristocracy. Um, there is another 70-year cycle which runs from temple to temple, but that's found in the book of Zechariah, and Daniel here is explicitly referring to Jeremiah. So we're talking about the 70 years from the rise of Nebuchadnezzar to right about the time that he's having this prophecy, which is when the Jews should be returning to Israel. That is, the Jews returning to Israel, the the, the the event that demarcates that really should have been the fall of the Babylonian Empire. But it seems that this Median king named Darius is sort of established to extend the uh, last breaths of the Babylonian, uh, Babylonian Empire. Um, therefore, Daniel is probably wondering why the return has not yet begun. If the Babylonian Empire is really gone and the 70 years are up, then he should be ready to go back home, and yet it's not happening yet. Therefore, he begins a series of confessions and petitions where he confesses his own sins and the people's sins, and he begs God to restore Jerusalem, meaning restore them to Jerusalem, meaning finish up those 70 years and bring everybody back uh, home. Ezra and other commentators say that Daniel actually was much more panicked, that he miscalculated the 70 years, Um, However, all of that's based on the identification of Darius as a descendant of Ahasuerus from the Esther story. But uh, as I said, I just don't see how that could be given the actual length of Cyrus and Darius' rule. Not Darius the Mede here, but Darius the Persian, the son of Cyrus. So I'm going to stick with the idea that the expectation was... Once the last Babylonian king was gone, Belthazar, according to our story, according to the book of Daniel, then the exile is essentially over and Daniel does not understand why the return is not happening as fast as he would have expected. I turn my face to the Lord God. To request in prayers and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, Daniel has declared a fast day of mourning for himself, as if he's afraid that the promise to end exile is at risk, maybe because of um, his or his people's sins. Given his political stature, there's no doubt that that uh, he would probably be what was called at a later time a reish galuta, the head of the Jewish. Uh, concerns in exile, and as such he is certainly in uh, the position and maybe even the responsibility to not only confess his own sins, but his people's as, as well. It is noteworthy that for the first time in the book, the speaker, Daniel, in this case, but any speaker in the book, um, is referring to the national name of God, the Yud Hey, and the, the Vav-Hey combination, the Shem Adnut, which fits because uh, what's going on here is no longer an international issue. This is specifically a Jewish issue about when the exile will be over and when the uh, temple will be rebuilt and what happens during that time. And you're probably thinking, I know these prayers and the answers you absolutely do. You should probably say them all the time. And I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed and said, please O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps the covenant, uh, who keeps to the covenant, I should say, and to the loving kindness. Uh, there's a sense in chesed not only about loving kindness, but a consistently doing the right thing. Uh, to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments, so as long as they keep keep the covenant, he he will keep it as well. Chatanu ve'avinu hirshanu maranu v'sor mi'mitzvatecha mi'mishpatecha. We have sinned and we have gone astray and we have acted wickedly and we've rebelled and have abandoned your commandments and laws. V'lo shamanu el avadecha hanavim asher diburubis shimcha el melachenu sarenu v'avotenu v'el kol am haaretz. And we did not obey your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our officers and our fathers and our nation. So there's no p- finger-pointing going on, according to Daniel. Everybody shares the blame equally. Everybody could have heard the words of the prophet and done the right thing. It's not just that the kings didn't listen to Jeremiah. We also didn't listen to Jeremiah, and we had the chance. So since we all did not keep our side of the bargain, Lecha Adonai v'lanu boshad panim you are in the right, that is, you are righteous in what you did, meaning in our, in our being exiled. We deserve to be shame-faced, as we are up to this very day. Uh, shame should Belongs to the people, meaning of, meaning the people who used to be of Judea and those who used to be of, uh, or used to dwell in Jerusalem and to all of Israel, those who are now near and far throughout the, all the lands where you scattered them due to their unfaithfulness towards you. That is, you did the right thing, we sinned, you did what you needed to do. lanu Oh Lord, we have, or we deserve to be shamefaced, Shame on our kings, on our officers, on our fathers, because we sinned against you. To the Lord God, So the Lord, our God, belongs mercy and forgiveness, meaning we need you to be merciful and not follow the tzedek, the right path, because we rebelled against you, which means right now we don't need justice, which will destroy us, we need mercy, which will bring us back home. And we did not obey the voice of the Lord, our God, to walk into in his instructions that he placed before us in the hands of his servants, the prophets, which in Includes not only the laws delivered by Moshe, that is the Torah itself, but any other instructions that came from later uh, prophets that we have in our Tanakh, and probably a lot of things that uh, were not written in our Tanakh because they were considered a one-shot prophecy. And every Israelite transgressed your Torah. Here, the Torah is in the singular, so it probably actually means the actual Torah, the books of Moses, and abandoned it, such that there was no obeying of your voice, and you placed upon us this curse and promise, which is written in the in, in Torah of Moshe, the, the, the servant of God, quote, because we sinned against him. That is, said in the Torah, if we sin against him, this is what's going to happen, and that's what's going to happen. That would be in the Tochacha. And he carried out, he, God, carried out the things that he spoke about us and against our judges, really our rulers, a shofet really is a ruler more than a judge, uh, who ruled us, um, to bring against us the terribly bad things that have never been done under the heavens, which now have been done in Jerusalem, or that we see have been done in Jerusalem. Just as was written in the Torah of Moshe, that all this badness would come against us, but nonetheless we did not turn to the Lord our God to repent from our sins and to wise up, Via your truth, meaning to use the Torah to know how to do the right thing. So after the confession of sin, there's the historical recollection. It really follows a pattern that we find in many talim. So God caused the badness to flower. The word shaked from the word uh, like an almond, the way an almond tree flowers up quickly. And he brought it against, brought it, that is, all these bad things against us. Indeed, the Lord our God is righteous in everything that he did because we didn't obey his voice and now comes the petition the desire that uh, things should get better And now, our Lord, our God, you who took our nation out of Egypt with a strong hand, which sort of commits ourselves, that's always part of the prayers, because it commits that we believe in that original salvation, therefore God can take us out again like he took us out before. Getting back to the verse, and you made a reputation for yourself even up to this day, which means that even though they are in the Babylonian exile, they still recall this exodus of Egypt, and they recall that God is great for doing so. But, there's still a confession, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. Adonai kechol tzidkotecha yashov na'apacha v'chamadcha me'irecha miyushalayim ha'kotchecha So there's a petition at the same time as there's still a confession. O Lord, with all your righteousness, meaning in spite of the fact that it was right to exile uh, exile us, withdraw. He petitions God, withdraw your anger and your wrath from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because it is through our sins and our the iniquities of our fathers that Jerusalem and your nation have come to be a disgrace to all around us. These words are so familiar. And now listen, O our God, to the prayers of your servant and to his supplications, and shine your face on your desolate holy place, which means bring it back to life and bring your Shechina back there for the sake of the Lord, which meaning not for our sake, but for your sake. "...Hatei Eloha y'ozlecha u'shamah, t'kach enecha u're'e, sh'moteinu va'ir asher n'kra sh'mcha aleha..." Turn your ear, O oh my God, and hear, open your eyes and see our desolation and that of the, of the city that bears your name, meaning that your reputation is made from it. Indeed, it is not because of our own righteousness that we pour down our supplications before you, rather it is because of your great mercy. mercy. And you may be thinking, wow, it's kind of chutzpah to tell God to open up his eyes and to listen to uh, these prayers. But that happens in him a lot uh, as well, because when you have a close relationship and you admit all of your guilt and all of your sin, then you can really come to God and say, you know, it, it's a little bit chutzpah dick in, w- in one sense, but it's the chutzpah that comes out of a close, tight relationship. And you have a close, tight relationship like this, you could say things like, open your eyes and please help us out. Adunai shma'a, Adonai salacha, akshiva v'asei. O oh Lord, listen, O oh Lord, forgive, O oh Lord, pay attention, and act, don't delay, for your own sake, my God, because your name is called from your city and on your nation, meaning God's reputation is linked to the success of his people and his city, so that there's something in it for God if he comes and, and restores Israel to her, uh, to her nationhood and to her holy uh, worship. Um, that's the end of the prayer. And as I said, you probably recognize most of the words and phrases which are now really woven into all of our prayers of supplications and confessions. Uh, Verse 20 will now describe the praying process and verse 21 will describe the events that took place as a result of his prayers. Again, the goal is... He's, he, the point is, he's not sure what's going on at this seventy-year mark, and he's praying to God that everything is okay. And he admits that they have a lot of sins, and please, O oh God, please bring us back to Jerusalem. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of my nation Israel, and I poured down my supplication before the Lord my God on the holy mountain of my God. Um, Of course, Daniel is not in Jerusalem. So the prepositional location which says, on the mountain in Jerusalem uh, in the holy place of God is referring to where God is not where Daniel is and that at least that's the literal meaning however i think we can be a little playful here and we can imagine that daniel while he's praying is closing his eyes and he's imagining himself somehow lifted off into a rebuilt jerusalem and he's praying to god there as if his prayers were actualizing the things that he is praying for And while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, which of course, he was not a man, he's an angel, but he came in the form of the man, just as was mentioned in the last chapter, who, he says, in fact, I saw in the earlier vision, uh, was flown to me with flight Uh, at time of the evening mincha, the time of the evening offering. Remember, Daniel is imagining, I think he's imagining, or I suggest that he might be imagining that he's returned to Jerusalem. So he sees the mincha being brought. And he sees, uh, and he sees the angel being uh, brought to him while all of this uh, service in the temple is going on. Note that the flying takes place in the passive. The word mu'af means that Gabriel was brought or flown to. It's a sense of it being almost involuntary, as if the prayers of David, Daniel are so powerful that they cause a, a kind of a, 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 an immediate response to his supplications. And he brought me understanding through words and said, quote, Daniel, I have now come to teach you understanding. What he will educate him about, we will soon see. But first, verse 23, davar at the beginning of your supplications, the command came out, which seems to mean that God commanded me right away to come to you. And I came to tell you that you are precious, which means God considers you precious. The word Chemda means to be desirable. That is, God has a need for you. He has a want for you. He, he desires you. So understand, there's a command form here, Uvin ba'davar, understand the issue or the words I'm about to say, and comprehend the vision which I'm going to show you. And now we get to the apocalyptic vision or the apocalyptic description. Um, Up to now, the going has been pretty easy because it's been pretty much prayer, confession, supplication, petition. Um, But apparently, behind Jeremiah's 70 years of exile, which is what uh, is causing Daniel to question what's going on right now, considering that Jeremiah said that the 70 years will be over, um with the fall of uh, Babylon it appears that there is a different set of 70 which is concealed behind the first set of 70 and it requires a revelation shavuim shiv'im nhtakh al amkha walirkot shekha al khalaya pesho ul hatim khatat ul khapara von ulavid zerkol amim walakhtom khazon wanavi wa 70 weeks meaning probably 70 weeks of years or 70 times 7 years or 490 years have been apportioned on or for your nation and your holy city for what goal to finish off the transgression and to complete the sin and to atone the iniquity and to bring an eternal righteousness and to seal the vision and the prophet and to anoint the holy of holies very apocalyptic since everything is really an allusion to something else. So according to Rashi what's going on here is that in order to cleanse Israel from all the sins that will amass during the Second Temple times, which means, sure, after 70 years you're about to go home and I'll tell you how that was going to work later. But during the Second Temple times, things are going to get so much worse that a much longer exile will follow those 490 years. Now it's 490 years going to Rashi and many other commentaries from the destruction of the First Temple until the destruction of the Second Temple. And then following those 490 years will be a long exile, Which hopefully we are in the tail end of right now in the 21st century, which whose purpose is to successfully clean away the heavy stain of sin that was acquired during the second period times. I won't go right now into what all those sins were. But uh, you could read various Talmudic passages to realize that things were really pretty bad uh, back then. Uh, the koanim themselves were acting in, in murderous ways, and and it's actually kind of depressing to think about what was going on at, at times during the Second Temple. Anyway, the Second Temple went up in 515 BCE, 515, and came down in 70 CE, uh, 70 of the Common Era, which is a total of 585 years or so. Now this does not combine or co- does not coincide I should say with the rabbinic count of 490 years which we that is the that is not not the rabbinic count of how long the Second Temple lasted which was 420 years I believe or 430 years I believe and it certainly doesn't match the count of here of 490 years if the rabbis are correct that the 490 years mark as Rashi says and mark the point from destruction of First Temple and destruction of Second Temple although of course they're basing it on this vision itself so many what happens is because the years don't match up many timelines that you might come across uh, which are published by uh, religious circles. Um, so they essentially cordian out a hundred years of history. They squeeze out a hundred years of history in order to make the rabbinic dating work. But it, it, it it doesn't really work out well with what we know of uh, external history. I think there's a better solution to the uh, missing hundred years, which is that while the second temple was founded in 515 BCE, 70 years more or less after the first temple was destroyed, it didn't really get off the ground right away, so to speak. That is, there was a foundation, there was a some kind of structure, but it was a mess. A close read of Haggai and Ezra will, will prove that while the temple was built, there wasn't much going on there. And then... Based on the fact that there is a whole missing time period between chapters six and seven, it appears that a hundred years go by without any history being written at all, a dark ages after which Ezra shows up on the scene. That is, some people think that Ezra comes right after Zerubbabel in and that whole first Aliyah. But no, the second Aliyah was probably a 100 years after the first Aliyah. He's the one, Ezra is the one, that restores Judaism. He's the one who gets the temple working. Uh, he's the one, along with Nehemiah, that manages to put the uh, walls of the, of the temple together so they can defend their city. He uh, cancels the intermarriage, which was destroying any hope for a national identity and essentially under the banner of Torah and priesthood, he re-reignized the Jewish people and Jewish autonomy. So, while the temple had a dedication at the end of the 500s BCE, it really was only functional as a temple only after Israel was restored by Ezra towards the end of the 400s BCE. And that explains the missing hundred years. So, But getting back to Rashi's point of view about the destruction of the second temple, that destruction marks a beginning of a cleansing cycle, a cleansing exile. It follows the 490 years, and then following that exile, that undetermined number of years that will be in exile, the Mashiach will come. Uh, perhaps then what the verse means when it says the sealing of the vision and, and the sealing of the prophets, lachdom chazon v'navi, means that the eschatological, the messianic visions of Isaiah and Zechariah and all of the others will finally come to fruition, but only after the exile, which will follow the 490 years when the Second Temple will be destroyed. Now, all of this makes sense from the perspective of the current exile. But a person living in the second temple, that is, an audience in the second temple, who was reading the Book of Daniel, probably thought that the Messiah would come immediately after the 490 years, which means before the temple falls, which explains all of the messianic cults that popped up at the uh, turn of the uh, of the era. Um, since they looked at all of those cults, looked at Daniel's year count, and said, "Now is the time." And now, if you thought it wasn't murky enough, it gets really murky. And I can't go through all the possibilities of what these verses may mean. I'm not only talking about what kind, what significance they have historically, but even the words of the verses are, are very difficult to translate because apocalyptic prophecies are elusive. They have code words, epithets, one image stands in for another. So I'll offer a few possibilities, um, but I strongly suggest that you look at the various commentaries to see uh the various approaches in full and know and understand Daniel is instructed by Gabriel from the time the word went out to return to and to build Jerusalem, up until the time of an anointed leader, the coming of an anointed leader is 7 weeks of years, or 49 years. And then for 62 weeks of years, or 435 days, I'm sorry, 435 years, it will be restored and rebuilt, and the open squares and water systems will be built, but all during times of trouble, which means it will all be a, a terrible time. It seems that What he means by the word that came out, which Gabriel Gabriel is referring to, is Jeremiah's letter about how the return to Zion will be after 70 years. So while Daniel is wondering why the return has not yet begun, Gabriel tells him that there is an anointed ruler who has come into play 49 years after that letter or about 20 years ago. Uh, who is the Mashiach Nagid is not revealed here, but Rashi says that it's Cyrus the Great, who is called, by, by the way, the servant of God and even called an anointed one in the book of Isaiah. Now, this seems like it's the wrong idea. That is, why is a non-Jewish king being called a Mashiach? because it's important to realize and not confuse the word Mashiach with what it means now with its Christological uh, flavoring. It is not a Jesus-like miracle man, and I do not mean to insult any other religions. I'm just saying this is what Mashiach means in Tanakh, in the original Testament. It means a king, and not even necessarily a Jewish one, who is anointed with oil on the approval of God and whose goal is to bring unity... And who will, and who will use his monarchy to fulfill God's will. This fits Cyrus, because the first thing he did essentially when he really got his Persian Empire going was to tell all the nations, including the nation of Zion, that they could go home to Israel. So that's Rashi's opinion. On the other hand, Mashiach may be a Jewish leader. Maybe it's Zrubabel who was part of that original aliyah or shortly after that original aliyah and who was a direct descendant of King David and therefore could easily be called the Mashiach and in fact the book of Ezra and Zechariah both recognize Zerubbabel as the Mashiach um and and maybe the 49 years is when Zerubbabel was born and that they should wait until Zerubbabel takes everybody back to uh to Israel um, Ibn Ezra says that the words that went out aren't uh, Jeremiah's letter, but they're Daniel's prayer, which is happening right now, which would then push off the matter for another 49 years. So Ezra says that that Mashiach is a later Nehemiah, but I just don't think it works out with what we know about um, uh, the dating of this. As I said, there's a missing 100 years, so the 49 years really wouldn't make it. Um, the second part of, the, of this verse, believe it or not, is more straightforward. Uh, which is that Jerusalem will be a lousy place to live in for, uh, for 62 times seven, for three, uh, 435 years of the second temple time. Uh, which means they'll build in it, they'll build uh, the walls, and they'll build uh, town squares, and they'll build water systems or moats. Uh, but, uh, none of it will be a happy time. And this actually matches the, what little history we do have of, uh, of those times, um, first that are written in the book of Ezra Nechemiah, later on during Maccabean times. Uh, and, uh, the middle time is really lost, but we could assume it was more of the same. So now we've covered 69 weeks of years, which leaves us only with one more to go. So we'll see what happens in that one on verse 26. <laughs> After these 62 weeks of years, the Mashiach will be cut off not to be found. And the city and the holy place, that is the temple, will be destroyed by the nation of a ruler who will come. And his end, meaning either the leader's end or the city's end, will come with a flood. And until the end of the war, or until the war of the end, with a capital E, which means the final war, desolation will be carved out. So... Question number one, who is this Mashiach who's lost after the sixty two uh, uh cycles of, of uh, years, after the four thirty five years? We don't even know who took over after Zrubavel, so who's this anointed one? Uh certainly not Korish anymore, he's been long dead. In fact, by the time Ezra makes Aliyah, Zrubavel is already gone, so certainly we don't have a Mashiach as far off as sixty two weeks of years. Um, on the other hand, maybe it's referring to Ezra. Or the priesthood, since Ezra and the priesthood did take over, and maybe, uh, the Mashiach means the coin Gadol, who by the way is also anointed with oil, and did have a certain amount of divine right and power, especially with the king missing in action. Another question for this difficult verse. Who is this king who brings on, whose nation, who brings his nation to bring on desolation and destruction to Jerusalem and to the temple? Rashi thinks it's Titus. Um, and that the war at the end is after Titus destroys the temple, there's a long period followed by a war of the end, which is the Messianic War of Gogumago. Another question, what is ended in the flood? Is it the attacking leader or is it the city? And what kind of flood is it referring to? Question number four, what does Nechretzet Shomemot, that is at the end of the war, it's hard to say what it means. It means it will be plowed out desolation or will be carved in desolation perhaps that part of it will be repeated uh, which is repeated a little bit the next verse will be cleared up I'm not sure I have any great answers for all these things. You have to look at the commentaries, really, and see what they are. Um, modern commentaries say that it's talking specifically about uh, Antiochus Epiphanus, Antiochus IV, and that this is just another, uh, uh, it continues the prophecies from for the previous chapter, that it's speaking about the Greeks and not the Romans. It's difficult to say because it is apocalyptic. V'hegbir brit larabim shavua echad v'chatsi shavua yashbit zevach and for a week, meaning for seven years, he, apparently this destroying leader in his nation, will make strong treaties with the masses, and for a half a week, that is three and a half years, apparently included in his seven years, not in addition to his seven years, he will hold sacrifices and flower offerings and on the corner, which perhaps means the cornerstone of the temple, which means the giant Evan Sh'tiyah around which the the Muslims built the Dome of the Rock today, um, on that stone or that corner there will be a desolating abomination, which perhaps is referring to some kind of terrible idol, which causes uh, people to be shocked and dumbfounded. Getting back to the verse, until it is over and destruction is poured out on the desolation, maybe. To sum up, Daniel is praying that Jeremiah's 70 years of Babylonian exile are up, and they should be up, but he's worried. God has Gabriel tell him that, in fact, hidden in the words of Jeremiah is another cycle of 70 years, probably 70, not just 70 literal years, but 70 weeks of years, or actually 490 years, starting apparently with Jeremiah's prophecy. He's told that by the end of that time, meaning the end of the second temple period, sin will grow so great that that we will need destruction. Exile will be required to clean the national stain. And that destruction will actually dwarf what's going on now in the Babylonian exile. I'm not sure that's much of a comfort to uh, to Daniel, which is don't think you have things so bad now since it get worse. But that's what he's told. Now, during those 490 years, he's also told that there will be three 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 time periods, three groups of times. The first one is that an appointed, anointed leader will, will appear on the scene uh, at the 49-year mark to bring people back to Jerusalem. Um, I think this is a immediate way of telling Daniel to relax a little bit, since he's living after the fall of Babylon, but he has not yet encountered Cyrus. He's saying, at least going to Rashi, don't worry, there's a guy coming very soon who will take you back. Uh, and in fact, he's been around Since 49 years after that prophecy, which means he's been around for 20 years, he's on his way, just relax. The second period um, that Daniel's told about is a period of 62 years, where the good news is it will be construction life in Jerusalem, but the bad news is that things will always be teetering on the edge of the cliff, so to speak. The final um, seven years will see some kind of king or leader that brings destruction and defilement to the temple until that destroyer is defeated himself. I'm not going to speculate how all of this maps into the events that we know took place during the Second Temple, or whether this is prophecy for after the Second Temple. As I have mentioned before, prophecy can be for a historic time and then for a future historic time, uh, but I'm going to leave it at that.